0: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and better. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.
1: My long-term desire and hope and really what I want to bring in is this idea that food can be um, truly no compromise. It can be delicious, nutritious, convenient, very, very tasty and in harmony with our planet. And that is the that is the world of food that I really want uh, us to get to and I really hope Vow can be a part of bringing in. And that should exist across every category. You shouldn't have to be going out and kind of weighing up the, ooh, do I want this, but it's bad for me do i want this it's better for me but it's bad for the planet or do i want this which is good for me and good for the planet so many trade-offs exactly it's like we don't have to do that in so many categories now
0: yep great to be back with you here as always i want to start by expressing my gratitude for our recent promotional package clients who have really helped us fast track the move to podcast sustainability if you want to support the podcast you can take up one of our few remaining promotional spots on the pod for the year and reach our growing global audience Our packages enable us to amplify support for all the amazing purpose-driven work happening out there that's having a major social impact, enabling you to reach a global listener audience comprising over 10,000 episode listeners per month, as well as our growing social media community. This is the chance to connect with our wonderful socially conscious audience, of whom 70% are 25 to 44 years old, and around 70% are also senior professionals in their field. You can learn more about this limited opportunity in our show notes. We're proud, as always, to be sponsored by the terrific folk at Neon Treehouse. They are a fantastic full-service digital agency, and you can be sure that they'll have the right solution for any and all of your digital needs. Again, check the notes to learn more. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome George Pepu to the podcast. George is the founder and CEO of Vow. VOW is a collective of innovators, engineers, scientists, artists and foodies working to improve the quality of life for people, animals and planetary health by reinventing food from the ground up. I've been chasing George for some time and was lucky to find an hour to spend with him on his recent trip down to Melbourne. Safe to say it was worth the wait, George has got some amazing insights on everything food, nutrition, sustainability, the circular economy and what the future of food can look like for us all. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with George as much as I did. What a thrill. It's taken a little while and uh, one botched trip, but I'm so happy you made it down from Sydney. George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to meet you in person at last. It's wonderful to meet you in person, and I, I think this is so much better than doing it over Zoom. I sort of feel more comfortable about this. We've had a nice tea. We've talked. We've traded alternative meat jokes, or <laughs> I tried one anyway. It didn't work so well, <laughs> but we're here now, which is good. Um, look. Let's cut to the chase. I really would love to know a bit about your journey into the space and how you started out. I know there's something about being a chef uh, way back there um, and a few other interesting deviations along the way. Map us out a little bit of your career
1: pathway uh, before coming into Val. Yeah, sure. I guess, uh, I mean, given you've thrown the chef thing in there, I have to go back to when I was a teenager. <laughs> sure. uh, so we're going to go right back. Um Uh, So when I was in high school, I was pretty much good at um, chemistry and uh, uh, hospitality, which was commercial cooking, and did the work placement. I was like, this is super cool, working in the kitchen is really exciting, really high adrenaline, this is great. I got to the end of uh, high school, I was like, okay, do I want to do the chef thing, do I want to do the science thing, and being 18, I was like, I could just do both. And so I worked full-time basically as a chef or a cook technically wasn't a chef, Um, whilst I studied a full-time biochemistry degree and then got to the end and was able to claim uh, my chef qualification through equivalent experience. And then graduated uni and decided, okay, let's do this chef thing. Let's give it a go. I've worked in the kind of short order restaurants and that kind of such, but fine dining is going to be this like amazing, you know, wonderful, positive experience. Um, And I got a brief Uh, Sort of stint at Tetsuya's when they were the number one restaurant. Um, It was like a really short fill for someone while they're on holiday. It sounds phenomenal. Just the name sounds perfect. (laughs) Um, Just imagining like this perfectly constructed sushi on a small plate. Uh, It wasn't quite that. It was, it was, it still is. um, They do this like multi course degustation. It's beautiful, beautiful food. But what it turned out is fine dining is basically just uh, factory work. Um, So 120 (laughs) diners a night, bigger station. I was on the pastry section and I made one part of one dish 120 times and Mm. it involved going in and making this same shortbread biscuits. It's like a
0: Toyota assembly model?
1: It was was like a really inefficient version because everything had to be made slowly and it was like make the same shortbread in the morning and then in the afternoon crush it up into a paste and put it in the bottom of shot glasses. And after like a week I was like, okay, I'm done with cooking. I've, I've, I've officially, I'm, I'm done with this. See, so
0: this is how they get you the prestige of the title. They said you can go from cook to chef and you bought it. And it's
1: like Subway, they're sandwich artists. They're not, Absolutely. They're not slave laborers.
0: And this, this is what happens. So.
1: so, anyway, I left that behind and I did a bunch of other stuff. I got really lucky and ended up doing a bunch of stuff in kind of the agriculture and food innovation and then strategy world. Um, and then sort of formed this view that, okay, well, how do you change the food system? How do you make a food system which is like more equitable, more sustainable, and just kind of fits with where the world's going? You don't really work with incumbent companies. You don't really try to sort of change, like, f- you know, tw- fiddle around the edges. You need to have new entrants that are built from the ground up to be better at these things. And then wasn't quite sure which bit to build. And so rather than trying to build anything, I ended up starting an ag and food tech accelerator and worked with a heap of different companies right at the very beginning of their journey. Ranging from like crop monitoring to indoor farming to sustainable packaging to a whole heap of others, um, and you just digging in spending time in that industry and in that sector it becomes really really clear that animals as a production system are bad <laughs> they're really they're inefficient <laughs> they're really land intensive and they're really really hard to intensify as demand increases and so then the question is how do you solve for that mm. and so i ended up uh, sort of doing this really long deep dive um, with a couple of friends of mine kind of going through a similar thing in parallel um, I think at least one of them you've had on the podcast, Michael mm-hmm. Fox from mm-hmm. Fable and um, Nick Hazel from V2. Mm-hmm. And we're all kind of going through this journey at the same time and digging in and being like, okay, well, what does the future of food look like? What does the future of meat look like? And form the view that it's cultured meat, which is you know where <laughs> Michael, Nick, and I all kind of like went our different ways. And then went and spent some time in the U.S. and tried to join a company. And it was like, spent a heap of time with all these different founders and like heard their story and it was like, everyone was like, yes, there's this great new technology and we're going to use it to make Chicken and it 's like, Oh, cool, like what then and they 're like, Oh, there might be pork <laughs> like, oh cool, what then and they're like maybe beef yeah. like, and then what and, like, and that 's kind of it, and I was like, Oh okay, and like someone with a, had a culinary background I was like oh there's like it's like there's new invention that can make new things,, yep. and no one 's looking at it like that mm. and I came back um I was in Melbourne, um I think that was like one of the last times I was in Melbourne, um, and I was talking to a, a friend and a mentor um <laughs> over a meal and um like telling her this story i was like i'm gonna do something and it's gonna be better than all these guys and she's like you're gonna do it because either do it or shut up yeah Um, that's what that's (laughs) what you need a mentor for that's right put up or shut up and then basically that was it and it was like okay well if no one else is doing this and this is where i think the world is going i guess you know (laughs) it's time to build a company
0: so i mean the problem has always sort of been about meat sustainability or the sustainability of meat um why his sort of the approach that you've chosen the the path that you went down because you could have just done a Michael Fox and said <laughs> um, uh, it's all about mushrooms and and
1: whatnot. He was already doing that too. Well, it was a <laughs> mushrooms were taken. <laughs> they were taken.
0: You had to choose. Well, there were crickets. You could have done the cricket powder. That's thing. Right.
1: <laughs> um, so the the way I was looking at the space is there's a heap of companies that are already going down the pathway of making beef, chicken, and pork replacements. And the way I thought the market was going to play out was either uh, people try these out a couple of times and they go oh yeah it's pretty good but it's not good it's not better it's just pretty good and so they just kind of fall back into their in, into their ways or they get really good and then you build a uh, you basically end up with 10 different versions of beef mints that are all basically identical mm. and that's a really tough environment to build a business in that is going to get big enough to have a big enough positive impact yeah. to make the effort worthwhile mm. And so, okay, in a world where you have 10 companies that make beef mints and they're all on the shelf of Coles or Woolies and they're all basically the same, then what happens? And all those companies go, oh, no, we need to be different to the guy next to us. And they start to change things. They change the flavor and they change the nutrition and add some omega-3s and do all sorts of other stuff. And then if you have a beef mint which doesn't taste like beef anymore, it tastes better. And has the nutritional profile of salmon. It's not really beef. You don't buy it as You're a beef right. replacement.
0: At what point does it not become beef anymore? You <laughs> just got all metaphysical on
1: it. Me. But it's quite quickly. You know, and looking at companies like Impossible and Beyond, they're mm. already starting down this path. They're yeah. already kind of moving away from the. Would idea. Would you classify them as um, beef products? Well, I think from a con- beef. I think that from a consumer perspective, at the moment, yes, they haven't quite got to the point where they've gone. They're just saying, actually, this is new, and this is something which you can't get any other way. And so in that world, you've got uh, this kind of evolution from protein uh, bringing a commodity uh, market where you're buying beef, chicken or pork into being a branded market where you're buying something like you know, breakfast cereal or Oreos or any other branded food based on your experience with its characteristics. Which companies are going to be able to have the biggest impact there? And it's those that get really, really good at building brands that a particular segment of consumers and usually a smaller segment of consumers chooses selfishly over meat. And I couldn't see any company that was trying to do that, Um, really probably with the exception of Fable and maybe one European company Mm. um, that was looking at it and sort of like saying, actually, we're not meat, we're something which is different and some group will want this more. And So So what do they call it? Well, I mean, we just call it food. (laughs) I would call it menop. Manner, <laughs> yeah, like the of, video game manner,
0: nah, like a gift from heaven, you know, it's yeah. like the, the meat that God sent down or whatever. I'm getting a bit biblical, but um, <laughs> it's uh, I don't know what I would call it, but that's interesting. So, it's kind of like um, future meat or augmented meat that's no longer it's it's so non meaty, it's a whole new product category.
1: That's um, exactly it. And yeah. So, it's like basically, if you look back through the history of consumer goods, there's really no category consumer-facing category where you can substitute out something for a more sustainable version and get really widespread adoption. Yes, it's true in energy and fuels, but those are are things which are bought as commodities, mostly B2B. When it comes to consumers, it's not like you got offered a better version of a fax and you adopted that. It It was email and it had different properties that were better. You adopted a smartphone because it was better than your old Nokia and I think the change in food is going to be the same. It's going to be we will make change in our own individual diets only when it is a selfish thing to do, yep. not because it's better for the planet.
0: So it has to be, like like we say with a lot of um, social enterprise models, if you're going to produce um, the same thing uh, yes. with more impact, it still has to have at least the same quality, otherwise the market won't adopt it. Exactly. Yeah, yep. makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and did you ever think about, I mean, I know it's very popular in this space to choose uh, something that already exists that's maybe underexplored as like a meaty sort of alternative, like coconut and there's mm-hmm. um, jackfruit and, yep. you know, eggplant, mushrooms. Um how come, what was the
1: rationale between, like, behind not going down that pathway? So there's this really, I guess, a really broad hypothesis that uh, underlies a lot of what we're doing at VOW, which is there are molecules in animal tissue which we have co-evolved with over tens of thousands of years, and we don't fully understand what they do to us and what they do to our psychology and in our diet, but they seem to be important. Yep. And they're not present in things like jackfruit, Companies like Impossible try to get around that. They make their one heme molecule. So the heme molecule.
0: is the one that I've heard of. Yes. Yeah, so
1: yeah. And they, they really uh, market that around being a flavoring agent. Yes. Um, and that is that, you know, they're sort of saying this is the thing that which makes it the beef It is the meat meats. properties right, yep. sort of agent. Yeah, exactly. And But there's thousands of other molecules ranging from things like collagen to things like um, phosphocholines and other phospholipids which are responsible for aroma. And so you have this really complex mix of different compounds that animal meat has that plants can't produce. And we can either kind of build them up one by one or we can go, okay, actually there is a production system that does this and it's animal cells. It's just it's really not very efficient to produce them when they're a part of a whole animal. So you've taken a bit more of a um,
0: transformational or disruptive approach or operating model versus what's already out there. You sort of (laughs) said, look, the cells are a fantastic vehicle just in their current um, manifestation (laughs) as a large cow on a paddock, not particularly efficient or good for the planet.
1: Yep, exactly. So
0: let's isolate them and see what we can do with that. Basically. And what does that (laughs) process sort of seem like end to end and and how far have you got down the rabbit hole?
1: Uh, Sorry, no pun intended with the rabbit, (laughs)
0: alternative rabbit hole.
1: (laughs) We had, a, we had a, a thread on Slack today, which was just a series of bird puns which went on for much, much longer than I was expecting. Can I join? <laughs> You're very well practiced. <laughs> um, so the basic process is you start with a sample of animal tissue, usually a little biopsy around the size of an almond, uh, and then we take that into our facility and we uh, basically just mash it up until we have all these individual cells. We have a bunch of processes that we've developed to allow us to pick out particular types of cells from that, like those that repair muscle or those that repair connected tissue. And then we have to within that identify a population which can grow long enough to be useful, and then get that population growing outside of the very structured environment that it's come from and sort of floating around in like you know in a in a nutritional liquid basically. Then we take those cells and we put them in more or less a big stainless steel tank. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure our manufacturing team would feel a little bit unhappy of me calling it just a big stainless steel tank, but that's basically what it is. <laughs> we swirl them around in that nutritional liquid, yeah. And the cells grow. We then harvest them and turn them into that final food product. Um, so it's conceptually a lot like, you know, <laughs> our pilot line looks a lot like a brewery. Mm. But a very fancy brewery. Well
0: you showed me a picture which is quite awesome. And um I must say that when I first imagined what you do, all I'd seen before was the world's most expensive uh hamburger patty. Yep. Do you remember that article? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, everyone remembers that. Where they <laughs> so they take a small bit of cells and then eventually it becomes like a three hundred thousand dollar burger, <laughs> which is apparently much less expensive now, but still wildly a bit too expensive to scale. Yep. <laughs> um but your process sounds like a lot more um different and interesting and you're not kind of spitting out a patty per se, um, you've got malleable options on what, what that might become, that, that set of
1: um, proteins. That's right. So we sort of harvest that and then we can turn that into a range of different formats. But because we've made a lot of choices about what we grow, how we grow, it, and what we turn it into at the end, we very deliberately produce a, a really, really versatile protein out the other side. And you can cook it, you can roast it over charcoal, you can oven roast it, you can fry it, you can bake it. You can steam it, um, you can pan fry it, you can sort of turn it into like thin crisps. You can kind of do anything with it. Wow. Which when it comes to what our first customers being high-end chefs can turn that into, that gets really, really exciting for them.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, imagine the fine dining world is just out of control with the amount of like uh, crunchy souffle little appendages and, you know, maybe there could be some delightful uh, beefsteak crisps with, <laughs> with the beef.
1: Who knows? could get really weird with it. <laughs> <laughs> could get really weird.
0: <laughs> that's phenomenal. Um, so that's very exciting. And, and one of the things I noticed about your your team is that it's a diverse, multidisciplinary team. And so um, how does that help you deliver on your mission at Vow?
1: So what I haven't touched on yet is the extra complicating factor of Vow, which makes things what we're doing significantly harder. <laughs> Go on. Because we don't want to replicate meat that already exists. Uh, we're not Sort of just bound to the meat that you're already finding in supermarkets. So we very deliberately set out to build a multi-species library uh, of cell ingredients from a range of animals that we can already eat, and those that we, you know, wouldn't necessarily want to like be able to eat on masse. basically cataloging those as ingredients understanding how they grow, what they cost, what they taste like, how they smell how they cook and then we can pull on those and you know, either have you know, single species or mix multiple species together each step in the R&D of getting cells from a species that grow reliably in a scalable way, generating that nutritional media to allow us to scale them up and generating all the process parameters each of those is really really hard It's like you're creating the seed bank but for meat. That's right. Um, that, eat, that sort of being able to take that seed bank and turn it into an actual manufacturing yes. process, that is that is really, really yeah. hard. And so from very early on, it became clear that uh, we were hiring these really, really very bright biologists and cell, uh, sort of cell biologists and um, other scientists, and they were spending a huge amount of time on manual operations, usually moving liquids between vessels and <laughs> spinning things, and mixing things that could be really efficiently automated and pretty much every one of these processes is just a function of throughput. If we can do it more, we can do it better and we can get to a better outcome faster. So with that in mind, it was like, all right, we clearly need um, to bring in-house engineering both software and hardware to allow us to do each of these steps consistently much better and much faster and with much higher throughput. So then suddenly we had um, engineering and scientists and then as we started to get to a point where we could produce enough cultured meat to be able to start to test with customers and uh, you know build propositions, it was like, okay, well, our whole thesis is about consumers choosing things selfishly, mm. which means we need to be able to solve a problem. How do we go through this process of identifying a problem, building a product, and then validating that product solves a problem, and that problem is real when you actually offer it to people? And so now we're at this point where we're building out this product team, and so we've got on the tech side, we've got scientists and engineers, then we have this manufacturing side, which has... You know, some scientists, some engineers are now, but like building up the sort of manufacturing ops muscle with things like supply chain and quality, Um, and then we have the product team, which is you know strategic designers, chefs, um, and increasingly it's going to be kind of people with more traditional product backgrounds as well. So we end up with this extremely diverse team to deliver on this uh, this vision, which is both. Introduces a lot of uh, fairly complex challenges because you're trying to get a lot of different disciplines working together on the same goals. But it's also the most valuable things that we've had, uh, or we've seen, have come from the areas between disciplines. You usually don't have scientists working shoulder to shoulder with uh, software engineers and applying mathematical uh, kind of, you know, <laughs> sort of uh, search techniques yeah. to things like how do you make the nutritional media effective and cheap. And so that's really core to who we are as a company and how we work um, and not just trying to treat this as a technical problem but trying to treat this as a uh, ultimately a product problem and a human problem yeah. that then obtains like the technical um, requirements. Sort of like an interdisciplinary problem as well. Absolutely. And so pretty much every program of work we have has at least three disciplines working on it. Um, whether it's like ramping a pilot line or launching our first product or exploring future products, we always have all these different disciplines working together. Um, and that is where the best stuff comes from. It's also where a lot of the uh, complicated organizational challenges come from of trying to get people which have uh, you know, not, often not even a common language of how they work. Yeah, that's
0: what's going to be my next question. So what language do you speak to each other?
1: <laughs> uh, it really depends on the program, I think.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking
1: it's like pigeon English on Slack uh, <laughs> punctuated with emojis. Well, I think one of the things it forces us to do um, Now, in a way that we didn't have to uh, maybe 18 months ago, two years ago, when we were mostly scientists, is we have to avoid talking in, I don't want to say jargon, but in sort of technical details. Um, If you have a strategic designer who's trying to have a conversation with a biologist is you cannot be talking in strategic design jargon either. And so it seems like it's forcing us to become uh, really effective broad communicators as a team because we have these updates and we have these sessions which is just everyone in a room working together on these problems and you need to communicate at a very specific problem uh, sort of problem solution level so that everyone can understand that and everyone can lean in on that because it isn't a biology problem it isn't an engineering problem it isn't a product problem it's a company problem mm-hmm. and if that is the most high priority thing disciplines don't matter we either solve it or we don't and if we don't solve it we're in <laughs> we're in a lot of trouble and if we do solve it, it doesn't matter who is responsible for solving that as long as it gets you know, out of the way as quickly as possible. So, how do you go about um, recruiting a team of um,
0: multidisciplinary, talented people? <laughs> are you looking first for the ones who come screaming, hey, I really want to save the world through, through alternative meat? Or is it more sort of people in these fields who are very established who are also passionate about that? Like, is it a sort of a mix? Or? Our
1: team's about 54 people now, yep. so there's a really, really broad mix. Yep. What we look for as a starting point, I guess there are a few things. Number one is some kind of mission alignment. And sometimes that is, uh, you know, real passion for animal ethics. Sometimes it's a real care for the environment. Sometimes it's people that just really like working on hard technical problems and see a huge amount of opportunity in the world of bio and bioprocessing, which has traditionally had a lot less of that technical investment. Um, And so there's a really broad range of reasons for people to be there. The other things that we look for is really kind, collaborative people um, that are very, very willing to uh, sort of not be overly compliant, um, but also not kind of steamroll others. And then we look for really high aptitude, more than specific expertise. Um, No one has done this before. And so it doesn't matter if you're the, the world expert in a particular part of cell biology, you still have never scaled cultured meat no one has. And so it's not about what you know, it's about how you're able to apply that knowledge and work within a a group of people to solve these problems together. Those are the things we screen for. Mm -hmm. Um, We still don't get it right and we're still refining this process. We're just um, sort of finishing our company values now and that's going to help us do this better in future. Um, But it's going to be a constant iterative process and one of the things we have to do much better is make sure the candidate experience is super, super valuable. We Mm -hmm. have around a like even after the second or third interview, it's like a 70% rejection rate. So there's like hundreds of people we've rejected and, their experience is not good enough. It's not where it should be. Yep. They should be screaming fans of ours by the time we reject them if we do our job right. Look, with the uh,
0: if they're screaming fans after two interviews <laughs> and a rejection, you're doing something right.
1: Oh, it's a, there are companies <laughs> which do this really well and we're not, we're not there. Um,
0: I never, never rave to anyone about a girlfriend who's particularly well dumped <laughs> me, so uh, I, I don't know. What if it
1: came with like a 360 feedback?
0: Yeah, probably make it even worse and harder <laughs> to take, to be honest. So I, I don't know. I think that's very ambitious and I'm kind of blown away and impressed that you're taking that approach that's cool um, you talked before about a bit about sort of that like food bank idea around mm-hmm. sort of mapping different protein types and what might be good now versus future and how we might work with those um, mediums and um, just wondering with that is that something that that's a bit of a public sort of interesting is is government government come to the table with that to support you
1: um, we've worked a l- like we've had a little bit of government grant money and we're talking to a few different parts of the government at the moment um, but to be honest, I think a lot of the government programs struggle to work at startup speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, pretty much any government grant, you have to tell them the plan and then you get a grant and a contract to execute on that plan, mm-hmm. um, which is really, really hard when we're moving at the pace that we are. And a plan lasts about 15 minutes for us. Um, mm-hmm. And so we submitted a grant at the beginning of this year, uh, which we still haven't heard back on. Uh, and pretty much since then, Every part of that is now (laughs) wrong. And so I think there are avenues for support. But right now, just because of the speed we're moving at, it's been really, really hard to to be able to access that support. That said, we are starting to ramp up that kind of government engagement um, and building that relationship much more, Mm. um, especially as we start to think about, well, where do we build factories in the future? We want a really, really strong and open relationship with the government in Australia if we're going to build our our main supply here, um, which is definitely not a given for us right now. Very well said. And and so,
0: I mean, I'm curious what you've learned about how to succeed in this space because, you know, you are pretty well backed. You're going quite nicely. I saw four or five um, funds that are pretty well established on your page and Gov as well. Um, What have you learned about the journey and sort of how do you kind of, what
1: advice would you give to people (laughs) who are trying to make their own startup grow and scale? Um, so we've raised we raised a decent amount of venture funding. We've been very lucky to be backed by um, some of the best uh, venture funds in Australia. Um, we had a pre seed round uh, led by Blackbird back in 2019 when it was really just sort of me and my co founder Tim and a story and an idea and a little bit of like a <laughs> little bit of you know, what in hindsight was pretty poor and rushed execution, but showed that we could get stuff done quickly enough uh, to make some progress. Um, Then we had a seed round led by SquarePeg and then we have an unannounced um, strategic round at the end of last year, um, which the press release is still sitting in my inbox three weeks late and I'm in quite a bit of trouble for not doing that.
0: Um, By who you run the joint? <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> several, several of our investors are very eager to announce fair, this, fair. and I have not done it. I'm really bad at the com stuff. It's like it, the marketing and comm stuff is really not a strength of mine. Oh, it's yeah, one of the areas the I'm worst. getting better at. Yep. Um, but anyway, it's um. I guess the, the main things are uh, the kind of big lessons I've learned. Um, one is the process for preparing for fundraising is a combination of consolidating what you've done and being able to talk about that in a really, really effective way and understanding. What parts of the story excite people? Being able to tell the story of the future in a really exciting and nuanced way, um, but also being able to show, hey, we can be a really big company um, that can be good commercially but also have a positive impact on the world. And then the other big part of it is um, relationships with investors make that process a lot easier. It's very hard to judge, judge a company well and accurately based on a, a, a few interactions around a fundraise. It's much easier if you're going to, you've built a relationship over time of saying, hey, we're going to do X, Y, Z, and then you come back three months later. You're like, so we did X, Y, Z, now we're doing A, B, C, come Mm -hmm. back three months later. Okay, we've done A, B. C didn't work, we did D instead, which now means we're doing, you know, one, two, three, and then just sort of keep that rhythm of so like. So sort of
0: like rapid prototyping and
1: iteration. It's just like showing them the kind of the line of progress rather than a one dot. Yeah. It's very hard to assess um, sort of one point in time story. Yeah. It's much easier if you built a relationship with someone over a year or two. Yep. Both ways as well. Like, yeah you know that they'll be able to add value and be able to understand you and your business and what you're doing and the Mm. risks and the opportunities involved if you've got a longer-term relationship.
0: I think it's also them trusting and understanding your thought process and it's a bit like in maths when um, instead of just showing the solution, show your workings and explain what your thought process was.
1: But, I mean, um, we've been very lucky to be backed by some really, really tough investors and they are um, one of the really nice things about investors in general is um, at least the good ones, that the people that have backed us are just super curious people that look at opportunities through that lens of curiosity. Um, and they'll ask really good questions. And usually the questions that you trip up on are the ones where you haven't thought it through well enough. And so that kind of um, pressure testing and criticism is really, really powerful if you approach it with curiosity and learn from it as opposed to shutting down and getting defensive because that's uh, I've done that, it doesn't work well. Well, you've just uh, outlined a very important life skill, becoming less defensive. <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, uh, yeah, it's think, a tough one when you're trying to build a crazy company like Val. Or, or just
0: trying to have good interpersonal relationships. <laughs> it's a very important one. Um, so speaking of, you know, all the seed, pre-seed, post-seed rounds, uh, strategic rounds and whatnot, have, have you changed your sort of business or
1: operating model a number of times or is it more just sort of the journey? Or I think it just becomes, becomes clear over time. We yeah. kind of remove some variables. Early on there were questions of like, oh, are we the AWS of meat? Are we mm. building the platform mm. and other people build products on it? Are we a product company? Are we like a, a general Hill, a mills house of brands? Um, and thats not that wasn't clear at the time, yep. but it also didn't really matter. It wasn't going to change anything over the next 12 months. And then over time you make choices which are either explicit or implicit that start to reduce the scope of those options, and it does become clearer. And it also matters a lot more. So for us it has become really, really clear the first version of Vow is a product company where we make the product ourselves in our own facilities and we sell it under our own brands uh, to food service and ultimately that brand flows through to the end consumer because that is how we start to introduce this idea of a new category of food. It doesn't preclude us from being an ingredients company or a manufacturer or developer for other people's products down the line or even licensing our technology, but that is how we start to create this groundswell and introduce this new category which allows us to do those other things. So you've made an incredible process, uh,
0: progress and just seeing some of the things you're doing is quite amazing. Um, how long do you think it'll be before we can eat some of um, our interestingly shaped products? Uh,
1: if everything goes well, um, first quarter of next year in Singapore, you'll be able to uh, sample our very first product. Yeah. Uh, did you just invite me to Singapore? Uh,
0: if you, I'm <laughs> if coming, you're free. I'm coming, <laughs> thank you. Uh, I'd like to send that an email, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that is very exciting. And, and what is the sort of taking it a bit beyond Vow, what is the future state of um, how people relate to, to meet in your sort of version of the world?
1: I think in general I've had this sort of, um, I guess, long-building philosophy around where food is going. Um, and I think right now uh, i basically talked to anyone in food and they're like, you have this triangle and you can pick two and it's taste, convenience and cost. Or taste convenient, taste nutrition and cost, or something. Yeah, there's various versions yep. of it. You can only have two of the three, so there. Yeah, only, yep. And so it's either you can have um, tasty and nutritious, but expensive. Um, yeah, nu- uh, nutritious and cheap, but not not yep. enjoyable, etc. Yep. And so my long term desire and hope, and really what I want, want to bring in, is this idea that food can be um, truly no compromise. It can be delicious, nutritious, convenient, very very tasty, and in harmony with our planet. And that is, the, that is the world of food that I really want uh, us to get to. And I really hope Vau can be a part of bringing in. And that should exist across every category. You shouldn't have to be going out and kind of weighing up the, oh, do I want this, but it's bad for me? Do I want this, it's better for me, but it's bad for the planet? Or do I want this, which is good for me and good for the planet? So many trade yeah. <laughs> Exactly. And it's like we don't have to do that in so many categories now. Yep. Um, it used to be the case you know it used to be the case in pretty much every category of consumer goods a century ago. there were all these other trade-offs that used to exist, and now we have all this abundance. Food is not quite there. Um, it's abundant but pretty bad for us. Mm. Um, and so I really love this uh, idea of the world where food is really enjoyable and we don't lose that emotional connection we gain over it. But it's also really in, uh, we get to enjoy it individually, and it makes us healthier, not more sick. Yeah, love it. I absolutely, so it doesn't that. destroy the planet. That little important asterisk. Well, yeah, it always comes last. And,
0: and part of it is, would, would it be like um, we have cows, but they're not for killing? They're just
1: sort of. Well, I don't think. I don't think traditional meat industries go away. Yeah. Um, in the same way, if you look back at the transition from animal mobility to automobiles. Yep. You, we still have horses. The horse herd peaked in the um, early 1900s. Yep. You know, it's now kind of an all-time low, basically, or at least over the last few centuries. There's not
0: enough people driving horses. I've always said that.
1: Oh, the Yeah, uh, the cops have got you covered. <laughs> basically, they're one of the few applications. But where, where yeah. horses are used now is the highest value applications. It's yep. in very visible policing. It's in leisure activities yep. like horse racing and – People that spend an absolute fortune to own horses, to ride them on the weekend. And then they can just do horse stuff the rest of the time. Exactly. And yep. so you end up with these—you uh, end up with a much smaller total herd size, but at the much more premium end of the market. I think the same thing's going to happen with our animal industries. I think we will still have extensive ruminant grazing, you know, cows roaming in paddocks and sheep yep. roaming in paddocks. But what I hope we won't have is that lower end of the market of those factory farms, which no one looks at and says, we need to do more of this. Yeah, There is a large number of people, especially in the farming and agricultural communities, that say extensive grazing can be in balance with our planet, um, and I totally agree with them on that. But no one looks at factory farms and goes, you beauty, let's do 10 times more of this. Yeah. But that's the direction we're heading unless we make a change.
0: So in terms of the horizon, like when it will be affordable to enjoy or for it to be convenient to enjoy our foods on a regular <laughs> basis, it, it's a long
1: game, right? Uh, it definitely is a long game for us but if all goes well and is tracking towards this before 2030 we're going to be you know we're going to be at or around price parity with conventional meat and that's assuming that's conventional that meat stays where it is that's 7 years away yeah it's a, it's not a it's not a crazy long game but if you look at some of the most influential companies of the last 50 years they didn't peak in their impact and their breadth or some of them haven't even peaked yet for you know forty, fifty years, yeah, um, Apple is more than forty years old now, still growing, mm-hmm. same with Microsoft, um, companies like Tesla, tw- nearly twenty years old or about twenty years old, and it's still growing is so I don't think I don't think we kind of get to a point and we're done in ten years. I no. think if we're right about where the world goes, we're going to still be growing aggressively for decades to come. there's you know billions of people to feed. And billions of meals a day um, that can be made and served with something which is much more sustainable. And it is going to take us decades to build the manufacturing capability, the product range, uh, the distribution and the technology to do that as effectively as possible.
0: Are there people out there, I'm thinking sort of vegans or animal activists who have a problem with your product or the way you do product? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) And um, what is their sort of line? So uh, there's sort of two versions of it. One is that this is still animals, therefore I, a vegan, i am not going to eat it. Yep. Um, and the other is, well, the better thing to do is for everyone to eat vegetables. And it's a, it's a really lovely it's a really lovely idea. Yeah. Um, but I do think that's a fantasy. And yeah. And so we do not care about vegans. And I yeah. say this publicly a lot. Yeah. Um, and often get chastised by vegans for yep. it. Uh, I don't care about vegans at all. Yep. They're already eating the most uh, sustainable, ethical diet that they can. You don't want to
0: shift their behavior. doesn't
1: matter. It's, mm. uh, if I shift them to cultured meat, they're going to be taking a tiny incremental step back. If I shift a carnivore to cultured meat, they're going to be taking a massive leap forward. Yep. And that's where Huge. the impact is going to come from. Huge. We are not going to have a majority vegan population. We're not going to have a majority vegetarian population. There are more meat eaters that are being, you know, as they get more wealthy being introduced to meat and introducing more meat in their diet every single year, we need better ways to make that meat. Love it. Well said. Um, I am
0: a meat eater. Um, are you? Yes. Yep. So do you think much about the difference between like grass-fed or, pas- or um, grain-fed beef? Is that important? So
1: because we have really uh, exquisite control over the nutrients that we feed ourselves because we make up that very precise nutrient mixture, um, we know exactly what's going in. Yep we have an enormous amount of control over what those cells are doing. And so much in the way that grass-fed and grain-fed are different, they're different in flavor, slightly different in nutritional content, especially around the lipid profiles, mm. the different nutrients that we feed ourselves gives, us, gives out, feed our cells, not ourselves although I guess we could drink it. We it's very salty, it's not very good. <laughs> it's an excellent double entendre. <laughs> um, the media, we, we because we have that really precise control, we yep. can alter things to change the final flavor and nutrients of the cells that we're growing and of the culture meat that we produce. Um, and so we think a lot about, well, what is the final product? What are the characteristics that we want unconstrained by the production system? And how can we select cells and media and process that gets us to that end state? Hmm.
0: So I'm thinking about you and more like your week-to-week, like what does a regular week of eating look like for you?
1: Uh, Depends on how busy I am. Um, Way too much junk food and way too much beer at the moment. It's been a very busy and very stressful period. Yeah. Uh, but I way too much takeaway, um, uh, or I oscillate between that and eating muesli for dinner. So, you, so not you're not else. like um, you're not. I
0: mean, I just imagined you would be somebody <laughs> who had like this chart of like what are the meat eating days per month and
1: like what are the. No, them? not at all. I'm yeah, very. Um, I'm very uh, because I have th- there's so much work for vow and there's so much pressure on the work that I do um, for vow. I put so much of myself into that. And then uh, everything else from my life and you know personal care uh, is has been second to vow for the last few years. And you look so fantastic. I uh, I feel three out of ten. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, you're doing something
1: right. Mate. Before I, before I started vow, I was like I was quite a serious endurance athlete, and it was like I, my diet was dialed in and training was dialed in. And Wait, I was did like, you
0: weigh your food and stuff?
1: Oh, definitely. Well, I used to I used to be um, sort of the last sport I was doing before vow. I was a. a, a doing a lot of cycling, um, like long-distance road cycling, yep. Lycra, like, you know, trying to, like, cut away to races. Yeah, one of those cool races. hats where you turn Absolutely. the top Absolutely. Yeah, amazing. I had all the kit. I had to, like, shave legs and everything. And so I was, like, I was like at the, like, <laughs> I was, like, really into all that stuff and it takes up so much time and brain space. Yep. And it was, like, training 15, 20 hours a week and it's, like, and then you spend, like, 15 hours a week eating for yep. all the training and you yep. have to then do all the food prep. <laughs> and it's, like, there was so much of my energy going into that that now goes into vow, and so it's just, like, a lot of, Uh, how I think about myself is just I just spend less time on it Um, and just like it's an afterthought of what I can do which is usually uh, some shitty food on Uber Eats. I get you. And how does a
0: man such as yourself um, unwind and sort of take take the pressure (laughs) off? Because you are, you know, it's a hugely pressured position to be in and, um, you know, I suppose uh, it's a common challenge that a lot of successful startup founders and scale-ups face. Um, So how do you take the pressure down a notch and, you know, lean back into yourself a bit?
1: I, my weekend routine or weeknight routine is uh, it drives my girlfriend insane. Is I get home, turn YouTube on, and watch like weird educational videos or like how things are made videos, and do emails in front of the TV. But my proper unwind hobby um, is I love woodworking. Yeah, um, I love making things out of timber, um, and usually uh, I love using hand tools as well. Just like meticulously hand sanding something. I made a bench, and I spent like eight hours one day just sanding the whole thing by hand it would have taken like 20 minutes with an orbital <laughs> sander but i was like i just want to spend a day doing something mindful and focused and yep. i want it to sort of I want it to be an object which is in my life after that yep. So i love making stuff out of wood and i'm uh, i fantasize about having a proper woodworking shop at home and i'm trying to persuade my girlfriend we need to move so that i can have that woodworking yep. shop <laughs> you need a space for yourself of course Absolutely. Of course. So, Nancy, if you're listening, Mike (laughs) agrees, I need my wood shell.
0: You set me up for that. Uh, Nancy, we we should talk uh, separately about this whole situation.
1: Um, Well, that makes sense. And Are you wearing an aura ring? I am. How do you like it? I love it. It's um, it's really useful for sleep tracking. Yeah. Um, the thing, do you have one? Not I don't ring. know.
0: I've got this um, sort of watch situation. I haven't got a good system at the moment, so I was just curious. Uh,
1: the, the, so the Oura ring, um, Nancy got it for me for Christmas. Um, Go Nancy. It was like one of those things. I've been like, oh, it's super cool. I want one, but yeah. I also don't want to buy it for myself. Uh, but what the, <laughs> you should buy it. Yeah, exactly. And then it <laughs> doesn't count. Uh, what's really good about it is you get this readiness score. Yeah. So it's like you know those days when you wake up and you're like, oh, I feel a bit shit, but like not enough to give myself permission to pull back yep. from like the high-stress things I want to do. Yep. Um, as I wake up, I look at the app, and some days the app's like, whoa, your heart rate didn't go down last night. And I'm like, oh, I need to chill today. I need to like cancel some meetings. I need to like pull back. I need an early <laughs> night's sleep. Um, And that just uh, having some almost like third party just give you permission to do that has been, that's been worth it by itself. I think it's good for people like you. But like um, (laughs) when I had a a
0: whoop strap, it had similar functionality like around readiness and whatnot. Mm. And it it would just, sometimes I'd wake up and I I was like, oh, this has been a terrible, (laughs) terrible sleep. Let's just validate that through the tech. And it would also say, yes, you've had a terrible sleep and you're not ready for anything. And it's like, all right, well. (laughs) Well, You're about to have a baby, so it's not going to be very helpful for the next six
1: months. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You slept terribly last night. I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So I think I'm going to lay off that tech for a while, but I can definitely see how that might be useful for you. And so there's the woodworking, any exercise routines?
1: I have finally got kind of consistent exercise routine Mm -hmm. going this year, um, which I've just been going to the gym and just doing lots of walking and it's working. Uh, My mood has really improved. Yeah. something some people on my team gave me feedback at the end of last year is like, hey, your energy and your mood have a really disproportionate impact. like that is not an optional thing for you anymore. like you need to show up in the best possible way every single day and your self-care to do that is not optional. <laughs> it was like, oh okay this is not like a this is not for me anymore is it I see <laughs> I'm doing this for the team and the company yeah what? Well, it, it really is because like, I was making I was getting to the point I was like tired and burned out and unfit and not sleeping well and making bad decisions and, and getting reactive to um, things that were coming my way and it was just not good I slept really well last night and I feel like <laughs> it's the
0: clearest I've been mentally and I just getting things done um, and then like on Friday night and Saturday night I had really bad sleeps and I was just like a yeah. drunk person. You know those days Absolutely. where you just feel like you're intoxicated?
1: It's like you, you get behind the wheel of a car after like sleeping five hours. And, like, yeah. I should not be able to yeah, drive yeah, and yeah. someone should be stopping me.
0: It, it, even to the point like I'm not sure if I can still be in this conversation. I might have to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, I totally feel you. It's kind of wild. It's like the amount of like, money over the course of my life I've spent on supplements and going to doctors yep. and getting blood tests and all that yep. stuff and then you like sleep for eight hours and you're like, oh, I feel like... Like I feel like I'm 10 times stronger and happier and more energetic and smarter. It's like, no, 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 but there's got to be a supplement which does this and I can still keep my crappy habits.
0: (laughs) So funny. So funny you should say that. (laughs) Isn't that the way we live? Um, Amazing conversation. I'm so glad we could make this happen. How can people connect with you and learn a bit more about uh, your work at
1: Val? Uh, I mean, follow us on socials. Um, you know, if you search Vow, you should find us. Um, the website is Vow Food. The company is just called Vow, um, and that uh, is probably my like single biggest bugbear at the moment. It's, it's not Vow Food. It's just Vow. Just Vow. It's <laughs> uh, Vow. Yeah, follow us. Um, we're gonna. We have some really cool announcements coming up over the next few months, um, and I'm hoping we'll be in a position to start to bring some members of the public through our pilot facility and sort of show the world how we're making cultured meat um, over the next six months. So, Fantastic. definitely follow us on socials and uh, get in line for that. And um, Uh, If people um, are you open to people hitting you up on um,
0: LinkedIn or whatnot? Definitely, yeah. So just hiring aggressively. You're hiring George
1: Pepper. I'm the only one in the world with my name, so you you can't miss me. So, not like Mike Davis? Not like Mike Davis. Fantastic. (laughs) You
0: cannot miss him. You can even find him via my profile if you find the right Mike Davis. Anyway, (laughs) that's a bit elongated. Thanks so much for coming, mate.
1: Thank you for having me. It's great to meet last.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two. If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.